All right, we are in the series uh, about encounters in Luke, and today uh, we have Jesus encountering a group of people. In Luke chapter 17, we'll start reading verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? When no one, when one, when no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. This episode that we just read, this is the only place in the four Gospels in which it's found. Uh, it sounds like a parable, uh, but it's not. This event actually happened. Uh, this happened uh, right before the week of the Passion. Jesus has been doing ministry in Galilee, and he's moving down towards Jerusalem. And as he moves down towards Jerusalem, he comes upon these ten lepers. And lepers... Uh, they, were, they were those who had leprosy, which was a painful skin disease. And it was highly contagious. And those who suffered from it, they were quarantined into their own little enclaves. And they lived this life of exile away from society. And anytime they got within 50 yards of someone who was a non-leper, they had to scream leper to alert them. Now if all this isn't shameful enough, this life of exile, this medical condition. They also were considered religiously unclean, so they couldn't come to the temple to worship. So you can see how this disease has this medical dimension, it's got a sociological dimension, and it has a religious dimension. It's a painful existence. And it's existence where a leper was assumed to have no hope for rescue. And some of you know what that's like. I think this is what it's like to be a widow or a widower or to have lost a child. People can say they're sorry all day long and they mean it. But you know that only those who have been through the same thing can possibly understand how far the pain goes. Well, that's what it's like to be a leper. Yet somehow these 10 lepers had this glimmer of hope when they had heard about Jesus they heard that Jesus might be able to help them. I mean, he did heal a leper in Luke chapter 5, 12 chapters earlier. So they hear that Jesus is going to be coming through town and they cry out to him from a distance in verse 13 when they say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This is interesting to me. You look through the Gospels, you see there's different ways that Jesus goes about his ministry. Sometimes Jesus is on offense, isn't he? You know, Zacchaeus comes and looks for him. But Zacchaeus doesn't say, hey, Jesus, will you come to my house and have a meal with me? Just the opposite. Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Jesus doesn't hold up a sign saying, I need 12 disciples. Jesus goes and finds them and says, you're going to follow me. Well, this time, Jesus is playing defense. Where Jesus is responding to the needs that get presented before him. And in this case, it's 10 lepers. And when Jesus comes up on this need, he doesn't touch them, he doesn't tell them their cure. 
that they're cured. Instead, he gives them instructions. He says, hey, I need you to go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, Jesus is falling in line with the Old Testament because in Leviticus chapter 13, anyone who has a skin disease and is healed has to be approved by a priest and inspected so that they could return back to public worship. So by giving these instructions, Jesus is more or less guaranteeing them that somewhere between the place that they cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, and the time they get to the priests, their leprosy is going to go away. And what I just covered here in these first couple of minutes is I've really just retold those first four verses, but we have five other verses And those first four verses are about a miracle where ten lives are changed forever. But the miracle of this passage is not really what this passage is about. Luke has not placed this passage here, first and foremost, to teach us about Jesus' power to heal. Instead, he has placed this passage here to teach us about gratitude. And that's what these last five verses are about. So today, I just want to put before you uh, four things for us to learn about gratitude. The first thing is that we see that gratitude is active. Now, when you think about gratitude, you likely primarily think about gratitude as a feeling. For instance, I feel incredibly grateful today. I mean, I can't believe that I'm alive on February the 13th, 2022. I can't believe God's let me live for 41 years. I can't believe that God's given me a family. And I really can't believe that the Bengals are in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I'm just so grateful. So it's about a feeling. And it's not altogether a bad thing. I'm sure all ten of these lepers were really grateful that they no longer had this sociological stigma, that they no longer had this medical disease. I think to some degree they were excited that on one day they were a leper and the next day they weren't. But when we see that there's only one man in the second half of the story who returns to be grateful We have to see that his gratitude takes on real action. Look at verses 15 and 16. Look at all the verbs you see here. Verse 15, you see that he turns back. He didn't just turn back emotionally. He turned back with his body. It said that he praised God with a loud voice. He didn't praise God in his heart. That he fell on his face. And that he thanked Jesus, and presumably when he thanked Jesus, these were with spoken words. So real gratitude is not wholly an attitude or a feeling. It's also active. So I've got to ask, is your gratitude active? Well, one way, not the only way, but one way you can gauge your gratitude is by your commitment to corporate worship. See, here, corporate worship is active, isn't it? You have to roll out of bed and get here. You have to stand up and sit down and worship. You have to use your voice to sing. See, God has assigned a whole day for active gratitude. Now, I I know that we all get sick from time to time. We're all out of town from time to time. And I know that you can worship week in and week out and be here at 9 a.m. sharp on Sunday mornings and be a thankless son of a gun. But you can't skip worship and be as thankful as you could be with it. See, Sunday worship is chiefly about gratitude. It's not about learning something. It's not about cups of coffee. But corporate worship is about meeting with God through his word, through his sacraments, and and with his people 
so that we might give thanks for who he is and what he's done. So gratitude is active. Second thing we see is that genuine gratitude doesn't always mean you feel thankful. But it does mean there's always something to be thankful for. Let me say it again. Genuine attitude doesn't mean you always feel thankful. But there's always something to be thankful for. Well, in 2022, there are reasons why you shouldn't feel thankful. Can I give them to you? Well, maybe at the holidays that we have just experienced, maybe you had to deal with your QAnon Aunt Marge. You shouldn't be thankful for that. Maybe you had to deal with socialist Uncle Mike at the holidays. Hard to be thankful for that. Well, give thanks, 2022. 2022 is hard to give thanks when 5 million people die of COVID. 2022, it's hard to give thanks when clinical depression in the last five years has risen from 8.5% of Americans to 27.8% of Americans. Over a 300% jump. It's hard to give thanks when Americans, uh, before the pandemic, they trusted their leaders somewhere between, uh, their political leaders somewhere between a fair amount and a great deal. Used to be 53%, after the pandemic, it's 44%. All this is very sad. And this is just accounts the ways that there are reasons why we shouldn't all feel thankful, but then there are ways that are particular to you. So if you find your place in a sad place when you entered worship today, you found yourself in a place where you've been crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me, and it seems like he's not hearing your cry, what do you do? Well, you can start by complaining to God. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's 150 psalms, and about 100 of them are about complaints. For instance, Psalm 13 starts with a complaint. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Does it sound like gratitude to me, does it to you? And as you keep reading through Psalm 13 you see that it starts out as complaint, but it ends in a very different place. The psalmist is processing his frustration with God in prayer. The psalmist does this to the point that at the end, the psalmist can write, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Do you see what happens? God uses his honest prayers to produce rejoicing in his soul. He's not thankful from all the way through but he's thankful at the end. Psalm 69, same thing. It starts with, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Does that sound like a prayer of gratitude to you? It's not. It's a prayer of desperation. And in Psalm 69, the psalmist keeps going with his desperation for 25 more verses after the ones I just read. But Psalm 69 ends with, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. You see what happened? He changed his tune. In fact, there's just one psalm that's sad and hopeless from beginning to end. Psalm 88. And I think that's instructive for us. 
Because we need to sit and lament. We need to sit and complain and sorrow before God. That's healthy. But it's unhealthy when these feelings aren't accompanied eventually with thanksgiving. So yes, be honest with God in your pain. Complain to him about 2022. But we need to recall that there's something more true than our circumstances and our feelings. And it's our salvation. It's the blessings that are associated with our salvation. And for that, we can be thankful. And can I give you a place to go? When when your feelings of thankfulness are running thin, the place you go is Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3, it reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then for the next 12 verses, he lists out what those spiritual blessings are. He says he chose us. He made us holy and blameless. He loved us. He predestined us. He adopted us. He redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's given us an inheritance and he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. And these blessings are true for you, regardless to how stable you are emotionally, mentally, or physically. These blessings are true for you, regardless of our social upheaval. These blessings are true for you, regardless of the fragility of the modern day church. And they're true because you've been saved by Jesus. So genuine gratitude doesn't mean you always feel thankful. Look at the Psalms. But there's always something to be thankful for. Your salvation, Ephesians 1. Third lesson we learned about gratitude from our leper friend. The third one is deeper healing comes as a result of our gratitude. Did you see in verse 14? In verse 14, we learn that Jesus cleansed the ten lepers. Cleansed. That's the word we see here. And when he says cleansed, he's not talking spiritual. He's talking about their disease. That their disease has vanished and now they are clean religiously to be able to go into public worship. So they've been healed. Leprosy has gone. That's what verse 14 says. Verse 19, something very different is said about the one who returned. The one who returned, Jesus says in verse 19, your faith has made you well. Well, you could translate that word right there, made you well, into saved. Jesus is saying, your faith has saved you. This is a term for salvation. It's a term to refer to the healing of his soul. So his body's healed in verse 14. His soul is saved in verse 19. He gets this deeper healing as a result of his gratitude. The sad thing is he's the only one who returned. The other nine were forgetful. They took Jesus for granted. Their hearts weren't melted by grace. And they suffered with what some Puritans called the most common of all sins, ingratitude. And ingratitude is just the way of saying that God owes us whatever he gives us and that we owe him nothing in return. What's sad is that for these other nine, their healing didn't go as deep. So how deep is your healing gone? Maybe at some point in your life, you've cried out to Jesus, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. Maybe you did it when you had physical illness. 
Maybe you did it when you were desperate for a spouse or for children. Maybe you did it for some mental or emotional malady that you're experiencing. Maybe you did it when you need a job. And guess what? God heard your prayer. Isn't that beautiful? That God hears our prayers? See, I think what's remarkable about this text, what I was thinking about this morning, was that Jesus doesn't say, until you realize that your soul needs to be saved, I will not heal you in any other way. I think that's what I would have done. Jesus doesn't do that. He meets their felt need first. Not only that, he healed them knowing that nine of them would never return to give him thanks and he healed them anyways. I think this is right in line with Luke 6.35. Luke 6.35, Jesus says that his father is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Doesn't that blow your mind? Jesus knows he's going to get a negative return on his investment. But to the one that does return, Jesus gives even more blessing. And this time, he blesses the one who returns without him even asking. Have you returned? Have you returned to give thanks? And then you only found more healing? I think this is a lot of people's stories. You found yourself in a pinch. You found yourself in the foxhole in the war of life. You were dead in the water because of some poor decision you made or some poor decision somebody else made. And you cry out to God and he saves you. It took a crisis to bring you to faith. And I think if that's your story, and that is for a lot of us, we feel guilty about it. We wanted to see our need for our soul to be saved first. But we didn't see that our soul needed to be saved after he saved it because he answered our prayer. And I would say that this foxhole conversion, it's a whole lot better than foxhole forgetfulness. That's three lessons. Let me give you the fourth. The fourth one is found in verse 16. The fourth one is you need to embrace your outsiderness as the key to unlocking your gratitude. Do you see the bomb that Luke drops in verse 16? He tells you how the thankful man is different than the other nine, and it's the fact that he is a Samaritan. Now, Jews considered Samaritans as outsiders, they were half breeds. Samaritans, they liked the Old Testament law, but they disregarded the rest of the Old Testament. They thought it was useless. Their holy place was Mount Gerizim, where God prescribed that the holy place be Jerusalem. The Samaritans weren't considered part of the covenant people of God. Jews didn't associate with them. But what we find in this section of Luke is Luke is trying to show who the worthy candidates are for the kingdom of God. And when he shows who the worthy candidates are, he throws in this Samaritan leper. But some of the other worthy candidates he throws in are other kinds of outsiders. One's an annoying widow who won't quit asking for what she wants. Another is a tax collector who identifies as a sinner. 
Another group of people are little children. Another person is a, is, is a tax collector too who's stolen from the poor, Zacchaeus. And Jesus is saying, this is who's on my team. Samaritan leper, annoying widow, a bunch of little kids, and these tax collectors who are sinners, who steal from the poor. This is the God squad. Welcome to my team. And what's true of all of them is that they're outsiders. They're all people who know they don't deserve anything from God. They know that whatever healing they receive is by grace and grace alone. And see, that's the secret sauce for being thankful. When you know you're healed by grace and that your healing has nothing to do with your upbringing, your class, your race, your record of obedience, your denominational affiliation, your theological knowledge, gratitude is the natural result. Listen to what Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, listen to what he had to say about being an outsider. Even this is Luther by himself. He says, even though I'm in the faith, my heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all, I've preached so long and lived so well and done so much. Surely God will take this into account. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home. Remember to not appeal to justice, but appeal to grace. I myself have been preaching grace for almost 20 years and still... I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace, yet this is what I should and must do. End quote. I thought of this whole idea of being an outsider when I heard a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell this week. It's the one where he investigates fairy tales. Anybody listen to that one? Me and Logan? Great. Big Malcolm Gladwell fan here. Anyways, this one, he interviews this professor from Ohio State. And he's an English professor. And the English professor from Ohio State, he says there's two different kinds of fairy tales. He says there are the, there's the original kind, the old kind. And then there's the modern kind. The original kind are all about fools, even bad people who fall into good luck. These are people, they're so dense, they're so terrible, they do such rude things to everybody, then they have no positive qualities whatsoever, and at the end of the story, they end up as a prince or a princess. That's the old kind. And one example of this old kind of fairy tale is one called Adam and Tina. Adam and Tina is a poor country girl who's sent to the market one day to buy food for her starving family. She's given all the money that the family has left. But when she goes to the market this one day to buy food, she buys a doll instead. She comes home with the doll, and you can imagine how her family responds. They're distraught. They think she's ruined the family. They think it's all going to be over. But lo and behold, the doll turns out to be a magic doll that spits money. See, in this story, Adam and Tina, she's not virtuous, she's not smart, she's not kind, she's not nice, yet she wins the lottery of life and she does nothing to deserve it. In fact, she does something 
that should disqualify her from winning the lottery of life. Adamantina, old kind of fairy tale. Now we've got modern fairy tales. And this English professor calls them poetic justice stories. They're stories where good things only happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. He takes Cinderella. Think about the story of Cinderella. Her mother dies. I'm going to poke at you Disney people. Her mother dies. Her father remarries. And Cinderella is stuck being tormented by her evil stepmother and stepsisters. But she herself remains good. She's given this magical dress. She goes to a ball. She catches the eye of the prince. She runs away. She leaves a glass slipper. She marries the prince and they live happily ever. You know what the point of the story is? The point is that her virtue is rewarded. And the evil stepsisters, they have their eyes plucked out by the pigeons. Poetic justice. And isn't that what people want? Well, it turns out that's not what all people want. What this professor has found is that children don't prefer the new kind of story to the old kind of story. This professor has actually done tests to measure the emotional response of children to these two different kinds. And what he finds is that kids struggle with the idea that good always comes from good and bad from bad. He says that kids know they're bad. And if bad things happen to bad people and I'm bad, then worse things are going to happen to me. That's what kids think. His research has found that kids find in the old fairy tales that bad doesn't always come from bad and good can come from bad. And so they prefer Adamantina to Cinderella. Why? Because kids haven't lost the wonder of grace. See, I would argue the older we get, the more we fight to be an insider and we can't accept our outsiderness. We begin to prefer a world where we punish the bad people and we reward the good people. And that's why grace is so profoundly countercultural and counterintuitive. But we must surrender ourselves to sheer grace. Brothers and sisters, that sheer grace came in a person. Jesus Christ, he displayed that grace with outsiders in his ministry. He ended up dying the death of an outsider outside the city walls. And he rose again from the tomb of an outsider. All to offer us healing. A healing that brings us into the inside of the love of God. Let's pray. Father, would you make us grateful people? Not just on days where our team makes a Super Bowl and our kids do things that make us grateful. And even on days that aren't our birthday. Uh, But Lord, you would help us see uh, that regardless of our circumstances, Lord, that Ephesians 1 is true. And Lord, we'd come back again and again and we'd fall at your feet and say thank you and receive more healing than we ever thought imaginable. Oh, Lord, do this work in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.